0: All the above. We've been looking at uh, several different people out of the Old Testament uh, in the last few weeks as we've preached this series on unsung heroes of the Bible. Now, everyone that we've talked about has been a hero from something they did. Some act that they executed by faith. And that is what uh, set them apart as being great. But today I want to talk about somebody who was made great by grace. Made great by grace. Because that's us. God is doing great things in everyone in this room by grace. His name is Mephibosheth, and since I have to say it about 30 times, I want you to say it once. Ready? Mephibosheth. Some of you are Mephibosheth. Let's try it again. Mephibosheth. Let's read about Mephibosheth. Now David said, is there anyone, or still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And so when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not still somebody of the house of Saul? to whom I may show the kindness of God. Ziba said to the king, well, there is still a son of Jonathan. As soon as he said that, David perked up. There is still a son of Jonathan. But I got to tell you, king, he's lame in his feet. He's a cripple. So the king said to him, well, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in a place called Lodabar. He's in a place called Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, son of Amiel, from Lodabar. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face thinking he was probably about to be executed. I'll tell you why in a minute. He prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. And David said to him, don't fear. Can everybody say that with me today? Do do not fear. Did you know that's in the Bible 365 times? One time for every day of the year. Say it with me again. Do not fear. fear. I, I could stop right there and preach. But we've got to move on. For I will surely show you kindness. Look at these blessings. I'm going to show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. I'm going to restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you're going to eat bread at my table continually. Wow. About then, Mephibosheth's eyes are like saucers. He can't believe it. I'm going to talk to you about this today. Father, thank you for this incredible story, this true account of what happened to this man, Mephibosheth. We pray, open our eyes, that we may see the blessings given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. In your mighty name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, Mephibosheth. And you can be seated. It's good to see all of you here in this third service. This is our third one. Saturday night is doing wonderfully and growing. We had uh, around 300-plus people in church last night, um, so we have sown over 300 people out of Sunday morning, and yet it's growing. We're thankful for that because it means people who God loves. Now, Mephibosheth is one of these kind of unknown names. You may have heard it, but you don't hear a lot of messages on Mephibosheth because he's one of these, these people that are tucked away in the shadows of the Bible unlike Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Malachi, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or in the New Testament, of course, the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul and James and John and Jude and all of them. So we've been plucking from the Bible more obscure names to share with you the message that we find to us out of what they experienced. Remember that Paul wrote, he said, these stories have been told in the Old Testament, that your hope might grow and your faith might be strengthened in your own battles. So what do we learn from this story of Mephibosheth? Well, it's one of the greatest pictures of our redemption and our salvation in the entire Bible. Now, let me give you a little history lesson on Mephibosheth. We're told in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, we're introduced to this young man as a boy of five years old. It says, quote, Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He wasn't born that way. It happened to him as a five-year-old. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul, his granddaddy, and the king of Israel, and Jonathan, his daddy, had been killed in battle. So in a flash, this young boy lost his grandfather and his father in a battle but he was about to lose even more than that. This was a traumatic moment in the life of Mephibosheth, a defining moment, a life changer. Because hearing that granddaddy and daddy had been killed, his nurse heard the news, was afraid that they would come to execute the child because he was of the house of Saul and King David's house was about to take over. She was afraid they would come to take the child and execute him, so she picked him up and fled, and as she hurried away, the Bible says, she dropped him, and he became crippled. My guess is she was running down some stairs like this. She was fleeing for her life. A five-year-old is not light, and this was a nurse, a woman. She's running with this five-year-old in her arms, and she tripped. He fell. His feet smashed against the pavement, And he was crippled immediately. So it had to be a hard fall. So in one hour, one moment, one flash, he learns, granddaddy's gone, daddy is gone, and now I can't walk anymore. I can't walk normal. I'm crippled. This has crippled me for life. Not a good day in the life of Mephibosheth. Now when I read about him, I believe I see what the Lord intended for us to get out of this story for you and me living in the new covenant. Because Mephibosheth stands in Scripture as a type of the fallen human race. Just as his nurse dropped him and he became crippled, Adam essentially dropped us when he he partook of the forbidden fruit and we became crippled by sin. There is not a person in here that has not been crippled by sin. We were dropped. Now, it's not fair. It doesn't seem right, but it's what happened when Adam partook of that forbidden fruit. It says that we fell with him. Romans 5, 12 says, when Adam sin sin entered the whole world, and Adam's sin brought death, and death spread to everyone. Every one of us experienced the repercussions and consequences of Adam's fall. He partook of that fruit, and we fell. We were essentially dropped in life like he, Mephibosheth, was dropped and it crippled us. I wish that I could tell this to the entire United States of America because the attitude out there is, it's all about me, it's self-esteem and self-improvement and self this and self that, and if I can just take care of myself, I'm gonna be okay because I'm okay and you're okay, and we're all okay in that right, and no, it's not right at all. We have all been crippled by sin. We were all born in sin, and shaped in iniquity, and like it or not, that's the truth of the Bible, and until you realize that, you can't be saved. Because Christ came to take care of the whole sin issue. So we were dropped. We were dropped, and we became crippled. And having inherited a sin nature from Adam, we are just like Mephibosheth, crippled. He didn't want that to happen to him. He didn't do that to himself. Someone else dropped him. And he experienced crippledness, a crippled foot the rest of his life. We, we too, we limp by nature. We limp by nature. Have you ever felt that way? Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep messing up in this area or that area? And if only I could fix this or fix that. It's because we're limping, unable to walk a straight path of righteousness by our own strength. Because we limp. We limp. Spiritually, we limp. Spiritually crippled are we all. Romans 5.12 Therefore as sin came into the world through one man and death as the result of sin so death spread to all men no one being able to stop it or to escape its power. No one is able to escape the pull and the tug and the power of sin. It tugs on all of us and pulls all of us down. We've all experienced it and we've all had to say God forgive me. I've sinned. Spiritually crippled are we all. And here's Mephibosheth, dropped. Now, I see something else in his story. Next, we find that he fled to a place called Lodabar. I I think the nurse took him because he was five years old. He didn't know where to go. He was hurting. He was in pain. He was afflicted in his feet. Now, he had been dropped. He's crippled. So she had to carry him, and she fled. Afraid that they were going to take the young boy's life. So she fled to a place called Lodebar, as far away as she could get. She fled. And I've told you in the last few weeks that. Names matter. The names of people matter in the Bible because they were often named after their character or after God's call on their life. Their name typified what they were called to do or who they were in their character. And it's the same thing with many of the places in the Bible, geographical places in the scriptures. And Lodabar is no different. Lodabar, where this young boy was taken, this crippled boy, means no pasture no word, no communication. What a sad place Lodabar was. What a sad place for him to be taken. Let's just take the first meaning of the word, no pasture. No pasture insinuates barrenness, no place to graze, no place of food, no life. This was a barren place where Mephibosheth was taken. Lodabar was barren where you could not raise cattle or anything that required green pastures. And I got to think that when I look at Psalms 23, it was the exact opposite of the kind of place that God takes you and me. For David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What does he make me to do? He makes me to lie down in green pastures of tender grass and he leads me beside the still waters of quietness and he restores my soul. So Lodabar is not the kind of place that God would take you. Lodabar was the opposite. And it reminds me of sin because sin always subtracts and God's blessing always multiplies. God multiplies his blessing. His blessings are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. God's grace multiplies blessing and multiplies faith and multiplies grace and multiplies good things. But In Lodabar, it's a picture of a sinful lifestyle. There was not only no pasture, but there was no word, no communication, meaning it was an isolated place. There was no concourse with others, no fellowship, no relationship, no companionship. He was in Lodabar, dropped in life, crippled in his feet, finding himself in a place where there was barrenness, isolation. No companionship. I believe he woke up every day thinking, I wish it were night. And at night when he went to bed, I think he was saying, I wish it were morning. There's no future for me. No hope. What am I going to do here in Lodabar? I've got to hide from the kingdom of David, lest they send somebody to find me and take me and assassinate me because my granddaddy was Saul who endlessly persecuted David and stalked him and followed him for 10 years trying to take his life. And now my granddaddy is gone. And I'm I'm left of the house of Saul. And I would wager that that David, if he knew that I was here, it would be the end of me. He would take out his anger for what my granddaddy did on me. So I'm stuck here, crippled, destitute, barren, no place to go. Listen, folks, what a picture of the life of sin. I want to tell you that sin will never bless you. Sin will never help you. Sin will never add to you. The prodigal son ended up in just such a place. Instead of it being called Lodabar, it was called the far country. He woke up one day and he said, I'm tired of church. I'm tired of the father's house. I'm tired of religion. I'm tired of this Bible. And I'm tired of all this stuff that we're always doing. I want to leave the father's house. And I want to find fun and fulfillment and laughter. I'm missing out not being out there in that world. And so he went to the far country. And what did he end up doing? He ended up eating pig's food, destitute, because all of his far country friends left him. When the money was gone, they were gone. When the partying was gone, they were gone. Folks, let me tell you, there's no good friends out there in the far country. There's no good friends in Lodabar. Let me tell you, give your life to Christ and let him give you some real friends that it won't walk away, that won't leave you. Get some covenant brothers and covenant sisters. And that is not what the prodigal son found. He woke up eating pig's food and said, I've got to return to my father's house. And here in Lodabar, Mephibosheth was was dying by the day. I want to guarantee you something. Sin will bring all takers to their very own Lodabar. Lodabar is a picture of the world. It's a picture of a sinful life. Lodabar is a picture of the far country. And I agree with you there is pleasure in sin for a season the Bible says so there is pleasure in sin for a season and it's sin's job to put on a good mask and per and present itself to you and me as something viable and logical and sensible and something that will help us and fulfill us and be good for us it's it's sin's job to masquerade as something good. And sin is very good at masquerading at something good. But sin is a lie. The Bible talks about the deceitfulness of sin. There's always a payday someday. If you go over into sin, if you leave the Father's house, if you go to a place called Lodabar, you will find soon enough that it's barren, it's destitute, it's lonely, And you want more than anything else to get out of the consequences of what sin brought on your life. We're told that Moses preferred to share the hardships and bear the shame of the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting enjoyment of a sinful life. Moses understood there's pleasure in sin for a fleeting moment. But after that fleeting moment, there's that payday, those consequences he knew that sin held pleasure, but it was fleeting. It did not last. The Bible says there is a way that looks right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It looks right, feels right, seems right, appears right, says that it's right, but it leads to death. Sin approaches us with great promise of fun, fulfillment, and freedom, but it always ends in disillusionment, destruction, and death. So here's Mephibosheth, Crippled and alone and destitute. He thought this is the way I'm gonna live out the rest of my life I'm an exile in Lodabar, but here's where the story gets good because Mephibosheth Did not know that a king in another kingdom had him on his mind Oh, I love this because isn't it true for you and me. Do you remember when you were lost and you did not know that there was a king in another kingdom who had you on his mind. He had you on his mind. He was thinking about you. He knew your name. He was knocking on the door of your heart. He loved you. He, he All of this was going on in another kingdom, and you and I did not know it. Can I tell you today, church, that there is a king in another kingdom. He has you on his mind right now. You're on his mind. You mean more to him than anything imaginable. You are more important to him than all of the universes combined. Because he gave his only begotten son to die for you on the cross and rise from the dead. That you might also rise from the dead one day. I'm telling you there is a king. And there was a king. His name was King David. And he was asking about Mephibosheth. when Mephib- uh, I knew that was going to happen to me. When Meph, can I call him (laughs) Meph? This is the tape we'll use for radio. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth did not know that there was a king asking about him, thinking about it, think about it. Mephibosheth was whiling away his lonely days in a barren wasteland. He had no idea that a great king was thinking about him. And could we have a clearer picture of the way that God thought about you and me and the entire crippled human race? We were on his mind when he sent Jesus to die for our sins. And let me tell you a real mind blower. Are you ready? Before God flung the first stars into space, before he scooped out the ocean, before the first birds flew into the sky, or the first fish swam in that ancient sea. God the Father talked to God the Son and knew that he was going to create man. And knew that man was going to fall. And way back then, they made a covenant together. And God the Son told God the Father, I will go to earth. I will die for them on that cross. I will rise from the dead. I will cover their sin. They are on my mind. They are on my mind. It's very, very difficult to comprehend how that could be but that can be because god is god and god knows the end from the very beginning he knows what's going to happen at the end before the beginning even begins and that's because he's god when we didn't know that he was thinking of us he was thinking of us the bible says when we were utterly helpless christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners when we were grieving him vexing him sinning against him breaking his heart he sent jesus and when jesus spread his arms and stretched out his feet and they nailed him to that cross he was saying in a way that we cannot comprehend i love you you are on my mind you are more important to me than life itself so i'm going to die for you If you're thankful for that, can you give God praise today? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. God is good. As we languished away in our own Lodabar, crippled and bound, a great king in another kingdom had us on his mind, I think, when I got saved in jail as a 16-year-old. Yes, I was in jail as a 16-year-old. If you're a visitor, let me just go ahead and and get it out now. I was in jail for sale of narcotics, and I had never heard the gospel, and yet there was a king that had me on his mind, and I didn't know it. I didn't know anything about him, but he had me on his mind enough that he sent somebody to talk to me in that jail. And they came and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my eyes were open. And he took me into a place that I could never have imagined. Gave me peace I'd never known. And can I tell you that that same king, that same God, has you on his mind. But it gets even better than this. This story just really gets me. King David wanted to bless Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. Catch that. It's very important. See, what what you need to know is that David and Jonathan had been very best friends, covenant brothers. And one day they met when Saul, Jonathan's dad, had decided that he was going to stalk David and try to assassinate him. And David was having to flee the kingdom where he had been a hero for killing Goliath. But now he's about to be a zero Because Saul is going to defame him, slander him, stalk him, try to assassinate him, make his life miserable. For 10 long years, he slept under the stars or in caves with one eye open always, lest Saul and his army find him and take him out. And they cut a covenant before he left. And here's what the covenant said. We have promised each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you and between my children and your children forever. Do you catch that? They made a covenant. Jonathan, I covenant with you that, that, that the Lord's going to be between me and you and that I will bless your children and their children and their children for as long as I possibly can. I will bless them because I'm in covenant with you. And Jonathan said the same thing to David, and David hit the road and fled to the wilderness. Well, Jonathan and Saul were later killed in battle. David was never able to fellowship with him as his best friend again. He was gone. David is promoted into the fullness of his calling. He takes over Israel. He is the king. He is the greatest king Israel ever had. He carried Israel to the zenith of its power. And while he was king, with everything subdued around him and under him, he remembered his covenant. He's a type of Christ. You remember I told you God, the Father, covenanted with God, the Son the covenant was when you die for them and rise from the dead and your blood covers their sin i covenant with you that anybody that comes to you by faith and trust your blood to cover their sin i will bless them i will protect them i will provide for them i will guide them and one day i will take them into glory for your name's sake that's right now so here's david he's going wow you know here i am i i'm in my kingdom now but i remember that covenant and i wonder i wonder is there anyone left of the house of saul is there any child of jonathan anywhere on earth and ziba says yes there is one he's crippled he's in lodabar he's in barrenness he's destitute he has nothing he has no future He's really a down and outer. David, he's really a nobody. He can't walk good. He's he's out there in the the darkness, on the peripheral of your kingdom. He's he's really not anybody you you might want to be bothered with. And David said, you don't understand. I've got a covenant with his dad. And so I want you to get a chariot. And I want you to send a representative to his house. And I want you to knock on the door of his house And I want you to tell him the king wants to talk to you. Does anybody know where I'm going with this today? There is another chariot. And it's the chariot of grace. And God sent the chariot of grace to your heart and mine. And the representative is called the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost knocked on the door of your heart and said, the king wants to spend some time with you. I came to bring you from Lodabar into the glory of the kingdom of David. Oh, that's good stuff. You know that on hearing the sound of the chariots approaching, Mephibosheth said, "Uh uh-oh, he's found me. This is it. He has surely come to assassinate me, but he didn't understand it was not a chariot of judgment. It was a chariot of grace. The chariot pulled up to his lowly home. A representative of the king knocked on his door. I believe he opened it just a little bit and looked out and said, can I help you? He said, I've come to take you to David. He wants to show kindness to you. He said, say what? kindness to me? I'm of the house of Saul that stalked him. I'm of the house of Saul that wronged him. It says Mephibosheth decided, okay, I trust it. He got into the king's chariot. He's brought into David's presence. As the chariot draws near to the palace, I believe his heart was pounding. What does he want with me? I can't walk. I'm crippled. I'm from low to bar. I've lived a barren life. What does he want with me? The Bible says the chariot pulled up to the palace. And the Bible says when he sees David, he falls down on his face, expecting the worst. But to his surprise, David says that he has called him in order to show kindness because of his covenant with his dad. But more! He wants to restore his land and have him live in the palace as his own child. Can there be a better picture of salvation? The Lord Jesus didn't want to just bring us into his presence. He made us his son. He made us his daughter. And guess what? One day a trumpet is going to blow. Can I tell you about it? The Bible says that one day the trump will blow and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And then we are going to receive the land we lost in the fall. We're going to have restored to us everything Satan stole from us in the fall. That's the truth. David wants to restore his land and have him live in the palace as his own son, the king's child. Mephibosheth cannot believe his ears. It's like, somebody wake me up. This can't be real. Why would the king show kindness to me like this? I I don't feel worthy of anything that I'm getting. This is undeserved. I don't deserve this. But what is happening to him has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do from being a beneficiary of David's covenant with Jonathan. And can I tell you today that when God answers a prayer, he does it for Jesus' sake. When God gives us peace in the middle of a storm, he does it for Jesus' sake. When God comes through in a pinch for you and me, he does it for Jesus' sake. And when he takes us into glory and all that was stolen from us is restored, he's going to do it for Jesus' sake. Imagine the scene. Each evening at supper time, a faltering footstep. I thought about this. I think this is probably pretty close. A faltering footstep can be heard coming down the hall. Step, drag, step, drag, step, drag. It's Mephibosheth. He appears in a dining room resplendent with silver and gold settings and a feast that he could never have dreamed of when he was in Lodabar. Beautiful draperies, grace the walls, a magnificent custom-made table stretches out before him the best that money can buy. Servants are standing there waiting to wait on him. There at one end of the table sits Solomon. In all of his wisdom, David's son, yeah, there he was, Solomon, Mephibosheth is sitting with him. And there also sits the beautiful Tamar, the king's daughter. Joab, the great leader of David's armies, is also sitting there and gives him a nod of recognition. Don't you know that would give you Holy Ghost bumps? The rebellious rascal Absalom, with his long flowing hair, glances his way and smiles before he made his big mistake and lost his life. But at the other end of the table sits the king himself, David in all of his splendid glory. And you know what he says? Have a seat, son. Still struggling to believe what has taken place, the once exiled, destitute, fearful, and forgotten son of a fallen kingdom takes his seat. How? Grace. Pure, undiluted, industrial strength. Grace. how am I sitting here? Grace. How am I eating this food? Grace. How am I sitting here amongst all these notables of the kingdom, and I'm not a notable? Grace. Now imagine with me the day is going to come when we sit at a table. The Bible says so. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to sit down with some very important people. Can I fill you in right now? There at that table, I think we're going to see Father Abraham who had many sons. We're going to see Isaac, and we're going to see Jacob, and I believe right there we're going to see the great apostle Paul, and I told every service so far, and I'll tell you, I'm going to make a beeline for Paul and hug his neck and say thank you for Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and all those incredible letters you wrote. Thank you, Paul. There at that same table is going to be Simon Peter and John, and we're going to get to meet Timothy and Jude and James, and they're all going to smile and nod. And there over there is Mary Magdalene, out of whom came seven devils. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, will glance our way and give us a smile. But all of that will pale when we see at the other end of the table, seated at the head of the table, the King Himself, Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And we're going to say, Hello, Jesus. God, thank you, Jesus. Bless you, Jesus. And he's going to say, I know that it took a while, but it was worth the wait. Dig in. Because while the world is going through great tribulation on earth, we're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, enjoying fellowship with our Redeemer. Amen. Can you stand with me today? And Jesus is going to say, have a seat, child. And you know how that's going to be possible? Grace. Say it with me amazing. Grace. Mephibosheth was made great by grace. And so are we. We have a great salvation, we have a great Savior, we have a great promise, we have a great redemption. We're washed by great blood. We're cleansed by a great forgiver. We have been filled with a great Holy Spirit. We have a great word from God. And guess what? God has a great future for you. A great blessing for you. I want you to bow with me for just a moment, would you? You may be here today and say, you know, Pastor Jeff, I know that that chariot's been sent to my house and the servant has knocked on my door. I've drifted from the Lord. But I know that that servant is knocking on my heart, the door of my spiritual house. And he's saying, I've been sent to bring you into the presence of the king. What a tragedy it would be. Inexplicable tragedy to miss that invitation. Don't you know you would rue that decision to turn that servant aside the rest of eternity? He's knocking. Saying, let me take you to the restoration of your land. Let me take you to the king's table. To be his child. Maybe you've never experienced that in all of your life. In both services so far, we've had people come down saying, I want him, I need him. They've wept in his presence. They have prayed and said, Jesus, come into my heart so important, so crucial. If you can say, Pastor Jeff, I've known him, but I've drifted and I know he's knocking. He has sent that servant to carry me back to the king's house. Or, I don't know that I've ever known him, but I want to know with all of my heart, will you take advantage of it today? Don't leave this building without letting Jesus come into your heart. And guide you. If you can say, Pastor, I'm in one of those two areas, I'm not going to call you down, but I want to see your hands because I want to pray with you. Would you raise your hands up? Say, I need him. I need to get right with him. Put him high. I want to see you. Let him see you. I need him. I need to get right with him. I see you people everywhere, all over this place, literally all over this building. Let the servant carry you to the king's house. Now listen carefully to me, all of you that raise your hand. I'm going to dismiss the crowd in just a moment. And when they're going out, I want you to come down and let me meet you right here. Don't you leave this building if you raise your hand. Because this may be the only opportunity you have like this for the rest of your life. To let that servant carry you, the Holy Spirit carry you into the presence of the King. So I want you to come down and in a moment, when I dismiss, you come down And let me pray with you. Can we sing a stanza of amazing grace before? Don't leave yet because we're going to do something very special in just a moment. As a matter of fact, George and Lucy, y'all make your way down. And let's sing amazing grace. Everybody sing it with me now.